I get suggestions all the time for episode topics, and I love that. This one was suggested by a few people, actually. It was said that this man is considered to be one of the worst criminals that ever lived. Consider me curious. I figure that if Carl Panzram does turn out to be the worst of the worst, let's just get him out of the way early on in the year. In 1930, while on death row, he was encouraged by one of the prison guards, Henry Lesser, who we'll meet later, to jot down his memoirs. After about a week of encouragement, Carl Panzram, considered one of the most despicable characters on this planet, decided that, yes, he did have a few things he wanted to say. And then he purged. He released all of his thoughts, all of the horrible misdeeds and life lessons in shocking detail. And when comparing his notes to the actual events, he did not exaggerate to make himself look more terrifying, and he did not curb his words to make him look more innocent. He just wrote. He added, quote, I left a lot out because I'm not much of a writer, and there is enough here for you to verify every statement I have made in case you care to do so, end quote. In a surprisingly detailed timeline, in deep and true honesty, His story is shocking, horrifying. It will make you angry, and it will even make you sad. It will make you cause to try and explain things away, or worse, ask yourself how these things could have happened. We've covered the topics on nature or nurture a few times on this podcast, and with this story, you won't be able to help yourself thinking about the implications. Carl Panzram. Was he the modern-day Frankenstein? Perhaps the people around him created the monster, and he responded the way monsters do. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. As you may have already assumed, this episode comes with many warnings. There are some harsh truths and vicious crimes headed your way, but as always, If this is not your cup of tea and you'd feel more comfortable skipping this one, I totally get it. And I'll catch you later on the next episode. So with all the formalities and trigger warnings out in the open, let us begin. A child was born to the Panzram family on June 28, 1892. He would be the eighth born to German immigrant parents. The family was attempting to live the American dream by having a farm and livestock of their own, but didn't know the first thing about either. It was a loveless marriage and a loveless home. Two of the brothers would die in their youth. The children were put to work as soon as they were able from sun up to sundown attempting to win over the hard, rocky ground of East Grand Forks, Minnesota. He would recall, quote, My portion of pay consisted of plenty of work and a good sound beating every time I looked cockeyed or done anything that displeased anyone who was older or stronger and able to catch me and kick me around whenever they felt like it. It seemed to me then and still does now that everything was always right for the one who was the strongest 
and every single thing that I'd done was wrong. Everybody said so anyway, but right or wrong, I used to get plenty of abuse, end quote. His older brothers taught him to start drinking pretty early on, as they would break into their father's liquor cabinet and help themselves. By six years old, he was already accustomed to alcohol. The family was poor, beyond poor. And when Carl was seven, his father left his mother and his six children alone to run the farm. The farm wasn't producing, the livestock was starving, and as soon as the brothers were old enough, they left home to find work outside of the farm. And they never came back. Already an alcoholic, he would go into town and ask the men in the bars for a sip of their drink. Apparently it amused them to have someone so young able to drink the hard stuff, and obliged him. This became his regular practice. Quote, when I was about 11 years old, I began to hear and see that there were other places in the world besides my own little corner of it. I began to realize that there were other people who lived nice, easy lives and who were not kicked around and worked to death, end quote. There was no money at home, and Carl got tired of not having nice things, so he began robbing the nicer homes around where he lived. In one of the homes, he found his first gun. He would talk about his dreams of maybe someday becoming a cowboy out west, and this gun gave him that feeling of hope, of purpose, and power. He would say, quote, I'm a thief and a liar, and a despicable one at that, end quote. He was caught more than once being drunk and disorderly, and was always returned to his mother. But when he was caught with a gun, that became another matter. He had tried to run away, but was always brought back home where he was, quote, beaten half to death and then sent to jail, end quote. After his brief jail sentence, he was sent to reform school. Enter the Minnesota State Reform School. It was said to have a Christian curriculum, and according to Carl, it did. However, its basic mode of education was torture. On Carl's first day, he was delivered to the manager's office and would meet the man in charge of his reformation, George Mann. The school's campus was broken into several groupings of cottages, each with its own head manager. He was deposited in front of the man, and the door was shut and locked behind them. Here he was asked a litany of questions about his home life. Was his mother a prostitute? Was his father insane or a drunkard? Were his parents educated or ignorant? He was then stripped down and examined introduced for the first time to sexual humiliation. Quote, he asked me if I had ever committed fornication or sodomy or had ever had sodomy committed on me or if I masturbated. He explained in detail and very thoroughly just what he meant by these things. That began my education. I have learned little more since. End quote. The next morning, his training continued. He was taken out to a separate structure referred to as the paint shop. The paint shop, as I'm sure you've probably already guessed, was used as a quiet, out-of-the-way place to perform the most heinous of treatments on the boys at the school, and those who were employed loved their work. The paint shop was there to, quote-unquote, shock the boys out of their old behaviors and to be a consequence of what would happen if they chose not to follow the rules. Day 1 Carl was stripped of all of his clothes and was placed face down onto a wooden bench. His wrists were bound, as were his ankles. A towel that had been soaked in salt water was placed on his back from his shoulders to his knees. 
The belt that was used for the whipping was similar to those we were introduced to back in the flesh trade episode. Wide swaths of leather with holes bored into it every few inches so that when it was brought down on the skin, the skin would pucker up into the holes creating instant welts with blood rushing to the surface trying to protect the tender skin. Every time that belt would come down, it would create new welts or bust open blisters that may have formed from other times. And the salt water was there to seep into every fresh break of tender skin. He would say, quote, About a week or two later, a boy might be able to sit down, maybe if he didn't sit on anything harder than a feather pillow. End quote. He would add, quote, When I was too ill to be given that sort of medicine, they used to take a smaller strap and beat me on the open palms of my hands. End quote. Even though he was an intelligent boy, he refused to fall in line reciting the religious doctrine which he could see was only spoken and not practiced. He did not hesitate to rebel any chance he could. He directly challenged the authority. But what do you do with a child that refuses to break? You try harder. He says, quote, Right then and there, I began to learn about man's inhumanity to man. End quote. This is when he decided that he would seek revenge on those who treated him poorly, and in his mind, that was everyone. So if he could not get revenge on the abuser directly, anyone would do. This would become the philosophy he'd carry with him the rest of his life. It started here, at the reform school. More specifically, in the kitchen. Carl was assigned to the kitchen labor, and part of his job was to prepare the meals for the staff. He never passed up the opportunity to introduce some of his own precious bodily fluid to the recipe du jour, and was rather pleased with himself. It wasn't much, but it was something. Quote, when I served food to the officers, I used to urinate in their soup, coffee, or tea, and masturbate into their ice cream and dessert, and then stand right beside them and watch them eat it. They enjoyed it, too, because they told me so, end quote. And then, in his manuscript, he added, quote, I wish they could read this now, end quote. For the manager of his cottage, Carl grabbed a box of rat poison and scooped some into the man's coffee, hoping to kill him. He was caught, visited the paint shop, and was removed from kitchen duty. This was Carl's first attempted murder, but instead of removing him from the school, they just switched up his job. He was in charge of keeping the grounds clean, inside and out, and at night. When Carl was a child, he would have to work late into the night, so he was used to minimal hours of sleep. The school thought that sleep deprivation would be another layer to the torture they doled out, but the joke was on them. He had been living on two hours sleep since he was five. The joke became even funnier while leaving him unsupervised overnight. He took it upon himself to burn down the paint shop with sticks wrapped in heavy cotton string and oil-soaked rags. He just discovered his new favorite thing, arson. Carl was beaten weekly while he was at the reform school. He learned so much more than what they were teaching. Lesson 1. Might is right. If a person is weaker than you, they deserve to be abused. Might is right. This became something of a mantra to Carl. He learned to be the most feared boy on the premises. He learned that he may not be able to get his revenge on those who held the power 
but he could spew his pent-up rage on those who were weaker, the boys younger and smaller than him. They would suffer for being weaker. He bullied and abused his schoolmates, sometimes within an inch of their life. The paint shop taught him how to inflict pain. Carl learned these lessons well and passed them on to others. It became a vicious cycle. When he finally convinced the warden that he had been redeemed, they happily sent him home to his mother with $5 in cash and a new suit. Carl spent his $5 on candy. If there was any heart or compassion left in the child before entering that building, by the time his stay at the reform school was completed, there was nothing human or empathetic left in him. He was hollow. He was unfeeling. He was becoming a monster. Years later, he would find out that George Mann, the manager of his living quarters at the reform school, would be dishonorably discharged for committing immoral acts, brutal and inhuman treatment of the boys under his charge. Quote, I learned to look with suspicion and hatred on everybody. As the years went on, that idea persisted in my mind above all others. I figured that if I was strong enough and clever enough to impose my will on others, I was right. I still believe that to this day. End quote. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break. And this one highlights Lumi deodorant. But today, we're not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places, promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. Life at home hadn't really changed with the exception that things had gotten worse. His new suit was taken away and he was back in his overalls, hoe in hand, working the fields from sunup to sundown. After the same day after day after day, Carl knew something had to change. He decided he wanted to be a preacher. In his writings, he was vague about why he opted to go this route, but apparently it made his mother happy and it got him out of the fields for a few hours per day. In no time at all, Carl was enfolded into the world of Christian academia. His records would show that he did well. He made high marks on his tests, but his past had met him there. Soon the other children began to tease him and point, yelling, Reform school! Reform school! Which he felt he must address by punching them. Quote, They told their parents, who told mine, who in turn told the German preacher to do his duty by me. He did. He started whipping me pretty regularly. End quote. Whether he wanted to become a preacher just to get out of the heat for eight hours a day, or he really was seeking the truth about a loving and forgiving God, is lost forever. He did not find any glimpse of an actual God that was told of in his studies. 
he did not find forgiveness and acceptance that he heard was offered in the lessons and passages he would recite daily. He wrote, quote, They beat me and whipped me for doing this and not doing that. Everything I seemed to do was wrong. Just at that time I was 11, 12, or 13 years old. I was just learning to think for myself. I first began to think that I was being unjustly imposed upon. Then I just began to hate those who abused me. End quote. Carl began carrying around a Colt revolver he stole from somewhere. He felt it gave him a sense of power. On one day, the priest goaded him. Carl blatantly told him to, quote, lay off or I would fix him, end quote. He ordered the boy to the front of the room to be whipped. Carl obviously disagreed, and when the preacher tried to physically remove him from his seat, but he couldn't, he started whipping him wherever the tool landed. He would bring the whipping stick down, hitting Carl in the head, shoulders, and back. As Carl twisted and turned, trying to protect himself, the Colt revolver fell from his pocket. Quote, he fell on his big fat caboose with his mouth wide open and his eyes as big as saucers. He was paralyzed with surprise and fear, end quote. Carl lunged for the gun and pointed it at the priest. Without a moment's pause, he pulled the trigger. He pulled the trigger over and over again. The gun clicked and clicked and clicked, but did not deliver the deadly bullet to his forehead. Carl was not afraid or frantic. He merely took his gun and left. This would be Carl's second attempt at murder. He was again sent home to his mother, who beat and berated him for failing. His older brother would raise him off the floor, demanding to know where the gun was. Carl lied and told his brother some secret hiding place in order to save his own life at the moment, and as he went to look for it, Carl packed the few things that he could call his own and left that same night. Quote, that night I resumed my journey to the West that had been cut short two years before. I didn't want to be a preacher anymore, end quote. Of his memories of both schools, his takeaway was, quote, I was taught by Christians how to be a hypocrite, and I learned more about stealing, lying, hating, burning, and killing, end quote. He planned on using these lessons in the very near future. Here we are in the early 1900s, and cars were not yet a thing. There was only one way to get as far away from where you were, and that was by riding the rails. Hopping on an open box car and enjoying the freedom of his adventure. Quote, I soon learned how to ride freight trains and passenger trains inside and out without paying my fare. For the first three or four months after I left home, I hoboed my way across the Pacific coast and all over the west, sleeping in boxcars, barns, sheds, haystacks, or most anywhere at all, end quote. The hobos in our history books don't really measure up to what was actually happening out there. Oh, sure, there would be a group of men sitting around an open campfire sharing food, cheap whiskey. Maybe there might even be a harmonica playing a lonesome tune. But there was a fine line. You were either an itinerant worker or really had no place to go. No home, no family. And then there was the other side of that fine line, the criminal element who dictated the rules of the rails. When a young man with hopes and dreams of heading out west enters the world of transient, his youthful education on the real world would be complete. 
Carl would use what he learned from the German school and would tell people lies about hard luck stories and that he was on his way to live with an uncle who would take care of him. He was a poor orphan boy. This was how he was able to scrape together money and eat. He was living off the kindness of others. He says, quote, A lot of bunk without any truth whatsoever in it. But people used to fall for it and feed me and help me on my way, end quote. Carl tells of a time in his hobo career that would have a direct influence on his later life. In the morning, this is graphic. He writes about a story when he offered to share information about a boxcar he had found that was warm and had clean straw with four other, quote-unquote, big burly bums. They talked about how he was such a nice kid and they wanted to help him be rich, have silk underwear and all the diamonds he could ever want. But first, he needed to do something for them. Yeah, it was that. He told them no, that he wasn't interested. Quote, My wishes didn't make any difference to them. What they couldn't get by moral persuasion, they proceeded to get by force. End quote. He was stripped naked and bent over the hay bales as each one took their turn sodomizing him. He fought and screamed the whole time. It took the other three to hold him down. He wouldn't stop fighting, biting, and kicking, as each took his turn several times until he was bleeding and exhausted. He was tossed from the moving train just before the next stop. Quote, I cried, begged, and pleaded for mercy, pity, and sympathy, but nothing I could say or do could sway them from their purpose. End quote. When he woke, his body was bruised. Every movement sent shockwaves of pain through him. He found his discarded belongings scattered about him and went about getting to his feet, finding clothes to cover him, and began walking toward the next town. He felt weak, humiliated. Every step was painful. Every time he closed his eyes, he would relive it. He would remember this feeling and learn how to use it for himself. Quote, I left that boxcar a sadder, sicker, but wiser boy than when I entered it. After that, I always went alone wherever and whenever possible, end quote. Lesson 2. Sex is meant to be violent and to show dominance. It's one thing to be mighty. It's one thing to be the strongest. It becomes another thing when you can dominate and humiliate. Rape, in his mind, became the ultimate position of domination. He realized that he was surrounded by predators and decided that he would never again be on the receiving end. Except, that's not what happened. He kept his distance and watched on the outskirts for a while when he spotted a group that was passing around food and the bottle freely. He moved in closer and fell into conversation. He gave them the spiel about being an orphan boy and wanting to get to his uncle, and how he was just a good boy. They let him sit along with them. They started passing the bottle around, and before long, he was drunk, surrounded by a circle of men. Quote, It wasn't very long until I was so drunk that I didn't know my own name, and soon after, I didn't know anything at all, but I sure knew something when I woke up. End quote. Carl was gang-raped again, being passed around, even being defiled after losing consciousness. When he awoke, he was alone, left in a field with his clothes beside him. Quote, I began to think that I would have my revenge just as soon and as often as I could injure someone else. 
anyone at all would do. If I couldn't injure those who injured me, then I would injure someone else. End quote. As a mother of grown daughters and with me traveling alone across the country, personal safety is always on my mind. I am always aware of my surroundings. I always let my people know where and when I'm going places. But to add that extra level of safety, I am never unprotected. Thanks to Damsel in Defense, I have several options for my personal safety, and can I just say, they are super cute. But don't think that just because they have bling that they won't do some damage to allow you to get to safety. And Damsel in Defense has thought of everything. DNA grab, GPS alerts, and easy to carry and access should the need ever arise. For your safety and all the women in your sphere, I beg you to check out these amazing products at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. Along with his continued robberies and arson, he also spent his fair share in incarceration. Quote, I was always trying to escape or being punished for trying it. I was a pretty big boy at the time, very stubborn and contrary, deceitful and treacherous. All the officers had orders to watch me closely. End quote. Here, despite what these institutions were created for, Carl used them as a playground to hone his skills as a predator. And let's keep in mind, He's not even a legal adult yet. While he was incarcerated in the State Reform School in Miles City, Montana, he attempted murder again. There was one jailer who took special interest in Carl. He said this man was an ex-prize fighter and it made it his mission to wear Carl down. Finally, he decided that he had enough. He wrote, quote, Every evening in the schoolroom he used to sit up on top of the front seats while he had one of the boys black his shoes. He was doing that one evening, and I got a board about two feet long and 18 inches wide and one inch thick. This board was made of hard oak wood and had about three or four pounds of iron at one end of it, end quote. While the man was distracted, Carl came up behind him and, quote, whacked him on the top of his head. Once again, his attempts at murder were foiled. The man lived. But this did do a couple of things. First, the ex-prize fighter found someone else to pick on, but second, the reform school decided that he was experienced enough to be sent to the state prison. He was only 15 at the time, so the law would not allow him to go. So they felt they had no other cause except to increase the punishments where he was. He later escaped, but would eventually do a tour of the Deer Lodge State Prison before long. His time in the various jails taught him everything but learning how to be a law-abiding citizen. Quote, I knew more about sodomy than old boy Oscar Wilde ever thought of knowing, end quote. If Mr. Panzram were alive today, he would have been diagnosed with hypersexual disorder, which basically means he had an overactive sex drive. If he wasn't engaging in sex, which we now know that consensual sex was abhorrent to him, he was thinking about it, and masturbating. When he was incarcerated at Montana State Reform School, they circumcised him, hoping that it would curb his sex drive and maybe save a few of the inmates. 
It did nothing of the sort. He moved about the country freely in between sentences by railway, this time as a master, not the prey. He would rob and set churches aflame, moving on from one city to the next to do the same. By moving about consistently, it was more difficult for him to get caught, or for a string of crimes to get racked up because the precincts didn't communicate as yet. In 1907, after a night of drinking, he had a brilliant idea that he wanted to join the army. He stopped by the army recruiters and signed on the dotted line. By the time he sobered up from his night of drinking, he was part of the 6th Regular U.S. Infantry. The short story is that only being in the army for a couple months, he was detained for theft. His trial amounted to treason and he was dishonorably discharged and got sent to Fort Leavenworth Military Prison on April 20, 1907, for three years. Some would argue that he was just a boy and made a dumb mistake, but others, who happened to include the future President of the United States, William H. Taft, he wanted to make an example of Carl Panzram. At the time, Taft was only Secretary of State, but unfortunately for Carl, he also had the last word. This was a military prison. It was a maximum security prison. At that time, it was considered one of the toughest, cruelest prisons in the nation. The guards would wager on how long a new inmate would last. Carl was not king of the castle at this prison. He was tossed in with adult repeat offenders, rapists, murders. The worst of the worst had landed here. Side note. Fort Leavenworth was also the home for varying amounts of time to other celeb criminals, such as Machine Gun Kelly, who was known for bootlegging and kidnapping, James Earl Ray, the assassin of Martin Luther King, mob boss Anthony Corallo, and drug lord Felix Mitchell, among others. Carl Panzram was always in trouble, he says of his time at Leavenworth. Again, thinking it would exhaust him and make him easier to control, not only did they send him to the quarry for nine hours to break rocks, wielding an 18-pound hammer, they attached a ball and chain. It weighed 50 pounds, and he was required to wear it at all times, and it only made him stronger and stronger. He was considered a third-class prisoner, meaning that he was always wearing the black-and-white striped uniform. Apparently, you could graduate from that, but Carl wasn't a fan of rule following. So if you're trying to get a visual, Carl Panzram was the epitome of the jailbird Halloween costume sold today. Black and white stripes, the ball and chain, numbers across the chest or the collar, and a pickaxe. He had run through the gamut of tortures that come from being an uncooperative inmate at a maximum security prison. The guards actually turned him into someone they themselves were afraid of. When someone who has lost all empathy for his fellow man has been given the strength and power to not have to fear any man, that makes for a powerful combination with terrifying consequences. He proudly writes, quote, That time I used a candle inside of a one-gallon can. In the bottom of the can was a lot of oil-soaked rags, when the candle burned down to the rags, that set the whole works ablaze, end quote. He said they never knew it was his handiwork, quote, She sure made a fine little blaze, a clean sweep, end quote. After several failed attempts at escape, he ended up serving 37 months. When he was released in 1910, he truly was a monster. Quote, 
When I left there, all the good that ever may have been in me had been kicked and beaten out of me long before. All that I had in my mind at that time was a strong determination to raise plenty of hell with anybody and everybody, in every way I could, and every time, and every place I could. I was the spirit of meanness personified." Another side note. Fourteen years after Pansram was released from Leavenworth, he took his revenge on, by that time he was a former president, William H. Taft. Carl robbed his home, and it would end up being the biggest heist under his belt. I'm not sure if he sought out to rob the Taft home, or if it was a happy coincidence, but there's more on that later. He learned to change his name and his looks with every town, and tried to change up his crimes. He was a wanted man from every town he stopped at, but since the police didn't share cases or even cross-checked, Carl's long, long, long list of transgressions weren't connected. Not that he wasn't caught and imprisoned, he was. They just couldn't put together his trail of misdeeds, so he was tried as a new criminal most of the time. New name, new city, new look, new crimes. Burglary, arson, drunken disorderly, and sodomy. Women scared him more than any other humans. While he was in Denver with money to spend, he made his way to the red light district. The evening was a blur, but when he woke up in an alleyway with the high sun beating down on him, he had no gun, no money, no coat, hat, or shoes, and with some knots on his head to boot. He said, quote, And the worst was yet to come about a week later when I found out I had a first-class case of gonorrhea. I began to suspect that the ladies were very good things to leave alone. I have followed that policy pretty closely ever since. Once in a while, since then, one would get her claws into me, but not while I was sober or in the daytime where I could see him first, end quote. Throughout his life and travels, he had opportunity for, quote-unquote, honest work, and a few times he gave it a shot. But every time would end in disaster due to his violent nature, his lack of playing well with others, and just the numbness about how to interact with other humans. He just didn't know when to stop. For example, one of his jobs was with one of the many Wild West shows that had popped up everywhere. While in Kansas, he was hired to keep rowdy customers from getting out of hand. What he heard was, You fight and win, then we give you money. He was very good at his job. Not surprisingly, he was let go a few towns from where he was hired. He didn't take the news well, so he followed the show to Sedalia, Missouri. He waited until everything was set up and the workers had all gone to bed, ready for the big opening the next day. In the still of the night, Carl crept back to the tents and set the whole thing on fire. Carl watched as it burned to the ground. None of the animals or the tents survived. He was just better off as an entrepreneur. He spent most of his days riding the rails, robbing people, houses, and churches, a favorite of his, and it was usually followed by setting them on fire. The other pastime he would remember fondly was sodomy. Not just for himself, he would force others to participate at gunpoint as well. He tells a story about a cop who tried to arrest him and in turn took the gun and forced two others to sodomize each other. When the cop was able to get his whistle and call for help, Carl decided it was time to move on. He decided that maybe he would have better luck in Mexico. 
so he made his way to Jacksonville, Texas. There he had found a little boy and claimed him as his own. He would say of him that he was, quote, one of the most beautiful, curly-haired, blue-eyed, rosy-cheeked, fat boys that I have ever seen in my life, and I have seen some nice boys, end quote. It's not what you're thinking. Oh, well, maybe, at this point, maybe it is. He kidnapped and sodomized this boy, bringing him along to use for his pleasure. He doesn't go into much detail about the boy, but refers to him as property. For example, he was arrested in Texas, and he says, quote, The cops took my gun, but left me my boy, end quote. Later in Rusk, Texas, he was caught for armed vagrancy and put on a chain gang, end quote, they took my boy away from me, end quote. Apparently, the driver of the chain gang wanted the boy for himself. He was later returned to Pansram in the prisoner's tent where the boy chose to stay with his captor. On the chain gang, you were at the mercy of the boss man, or sometimes known as the driver. The courts may say you have to serve X amount of days, but it's the boss man's discretion to cut you loose or not. Thanks to Carl Panzram's sheer bulk, he was chosen not to be released at the agreed-upon 40 days. He was beaten when he rebelled at their decision. A couple days later, he attempted to escape but was caught. On this day, as an example for the other prisoners, they erected a snorting pole. I had never heard of such a thing, so I went to find out what it was. And again, you may want to skip this part. A snorting pole is called that because of the sound a person makes while suffering the abuses of the human mind. It's described as about a 12-foot pole and was used often in prison punishment. It was probably first used on Carl at Fort Leavenworth as they had one in their yard and it was sometimes used as a spectator sport as well as a deterrent. A rope is made into a loop with a pair of handcuffs hanging over the top. Once the prisoner is handcuffed, they would pull on the rope which went through a hole near the top of the pole, lifting the prisoner's arms over their head. They would continue to pull until the prisoner could barely balance on his tiptoes. He would most time be stripped naked and then whipped. So, while he is attempting to release the strain of his arms being pulled out of their sockets, he is being whipped, causing his body to twist and turn, allowing the whip to strike vulnerable skin all the way around. The weapon of choice was called a snake whip. The snake whips were created to have several straps held together by one handle. They say it was used to be able to strike any rattlers they found that got too close to their camps, and that may be true, but they found other uses as well. To make the whippings more devastating and cruel, on the ends of each strap, a lead weight was tied to add welts to the prisoner's skin. Once his torture was over, he was put back on the chain gang for another 25 days before he would escape, alone. His boy was never mentioned again as Carl walked away to his freedom. He vividly remembers walking through Houston, Texas at the time the entire city was on fire. This puts us at 1912. February 21st, to be more precise. On this day, 40 blocks of Houston's residential and business real estate went up in flames, and Carl walked calmly and, dare I say, happily, watching the flames devour everything in its path. He would recall, quote, 
The stuff I stole there kept me in funds and living high until I hit El Paso, Texas. End quote. He joined the Foreign Legion in the Constitutionalist Army of Northern Mexico, but only lasted a month. He found himself in the middle of nowhere without anything. The horse he stole to get back to the States died along the way and left him on foot, fighting for his life in the deserts and harsh temperatures. He would rob the chicken coops he would come across and then set them on fire. At the moment... Arson was the only thing that gave him peace, so he, he torched barns, sheds, fences. He'd write, quote, When I couldn't burn anything else, I would set fire to the grass on the prairies or the woods, anything and everything, end quote. By the time he made it back to the rails, he went back to rape. Quote, I would make them raise their hands and drop their pants. I wasn't very particular. I rode them old and young, tall and short, white and black. It made no difference to me. End quote. Over the next few years, he was in and out of the prison systems out west. Quote, I prayed on the weak, the harmless, and the unexpecting. The lesson I was taught by others might makes right. End quote. There was a time while he was in Astoria, Oregon, when he got pinched for burglary. The court appointed defense attorney told him that if he confessed and gave the police the location of the rest of his stolen goods, he would get him off with a lighter sentence, saving the taxpayers the expense of a trial. But when it came to the trial, the judge handed down the full sentence, seven years. He was not happy and flew into a rage at the Oregon State Penitentiary. He dislocated the bars holding him in his cell, but instead of running for the front door, he ran deeper into the prison and began destroying the jail. He had plugged up all the locks that kept anyone from coming in or getting out. Quote, I tore loose all the radiators and steam pipes, smashed all the electric wiring, took the cook stove, all the dishes, all the food, all the blankets, mattresses, and clothing, all the furniture, benches, tables, chairs, books, and everything that was loose or could be torn loose that would burn. Then I piled it all up and set fire to it. End quote. It took several men to hold him down once he made it out to the yard swinging the rusty, broken cell bar in his hand. When they took him from solitary, it was to send him to an even more stringent prison, the Salem Correctional Facility, and that was in 1914. Here, he made it personal. The warden was well-known Harry Minto, and the two would face off on a regular basis. Carl swore that he would not do his assigned seven years and Minto begged to differ. Carl made it his mission to cause as much damage as he could, and if he couldn't escape, he was going to help everyone else he could to get out. Quote, I was always agitating and egging the other cons to try and escape or raise hell in some way. End quote. Otto Hooker was one prisoner that followed Panzram's advice to the letter. He got a job working the prisoner's farm, and as soon as he did, he attempted to escape even as the warden stood by and watched. This particular warden liked to have a hand in all things in his prison, so instead of leaving the chase to his guards, Minto pursued Hooker himself. And it was Minto that finally caught the boy and proceeded to beat him down, but Otto Hooker was able to get his gun and shoot Minto in the head. But by this time, the other guards had caught up with him and killed him in turn. This would be Carl's first accessory to murder before the fact. 
charge. He got some time added to his sentence, but worse, the new warden to replace Harry Minto would end up being his brother, John, and he was looking for vengeance. Carl's first priority was always to escape, but when that couldn't happen, at the moment, he spent his spare time riling up his fellow inmates to make the guards miserable. If he wasn't the main instigator, he was definitely in the top five of the riot and fire that almost got the Oregon State Penitentiary shut down. He masterminded a series of fires in the prison shops which burned most of them to the ground. This got him kicked, literally, within an inch of his life and solitary confinement for 61 days. He lived on bread and water for that time, and when he was weak enough not to put up a fight, they carried him to a brand new cage built just for him and four others. It was in one corner of the yard and close enough to the riflemen in the tower that they would have no problem picking them off. In less than three months, two of the prisoners escaped, and the three that were left behind would suffer for it. They were stripped naked and chained them to the chain-link fence walls of their prison within a prison, facing outward toward the yard. Then the warden turned on the fire hose until they were black and blue and their handcuffs were ripping through their skin. They could barely hear and their eyes were so swollen they couldn't open them. Somehow these actions were found out and reported, then the warden, John Minto, and the deputy warden ended up getting fired. The new warden was a man unlike anyone Carl had ever met before. This ex-army captain was to introduce Carl to things he'd never witnessed. I hope you'll join me next week to find out how Carl Panzram does when he's faced with kindness, fairness, and idealist. Thank you for joining me this week, and I'm sorry to have to leave you at such a cliffhanger, but there is still so much more to the life story of Carl Panzram. I can tell you, spoiler alert, he is not redeemed, but he goes out of his way to earn his title as the worst criminal in history, and he travels the continents to do so. I'm Elizabeth Bougere. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.